This episode includes discussions of murder that may be offensive to some people. Please exercise caution for children under 13. Today is October 14, 2019. It is also a holiday. That is correct. It is National Dessert Day. Today, across America, people are encouraged to celebrate their favorite after-meal treat. But remember, this holiday is completely distinct from Sweetest Day. Another day celebrating sugary confections, this Saturday, October 19th. No one knows just how old National Dessert Day is. It has no cultural tradition, and most barely know it exists. So why is it even on the calendar? In every country, but particularly in America, the yearly calendar has become filled with holidays no one has ever heard of. On top of the big holidays like Christmas and New Year's, every single day contains a holiday of some kind. They may seem sort of pointless on the surface, but in reality they exist for a very specific reason. To prop up an industry worth billions of dollars. Whether they exist to sell us gift cards and candy, or simply promote their brands with kitschy advertisements, Hallmark holidays are an undeniable fact of life in many countries. But how deep do they go? Where does the line between a fake holiday and a real one even exist? We may scoff at the idea of Hallmark holidays, but some of the biggest and most widely celebrated days of the year owe their existence to marketing campaigns and insidious manipulation of nostalgia. So whether you scoff or celebrate National Dessert Day, be careful. The next holiday you observe may not be as legitimate as you assume. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind the cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our second episode on The Dark Side of Holidays, The holiday season may be seen as a time of celebration for many, but its saccharine exterior conceals many unpleasant truths. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we're taking a look at the phenomena of Hallmark holidays, known today as hashtag holidays. The idea that consumerism drives the holiday season is nothing new, but the extent of the connection may run deeper than we realize. In this episode, we'll discuss the purpose of filling the calendar with useless, whimsical holidays, and how some of the most beloved holidays were engineered and driven by corporate America. 
Last week, we talked about the incredible emotional, psychological, and financial burden holidays place on the average person. It's hard to deny that holidays, despite their veneer of innocence, have darker side effects that cannot be ignored. And if the big holidays, such as Thanksgiving and Christmas, can throw a person's life into turmoil, what possible benefit can there be to adding even more holidays to the calendar? This is the question we face when looking at the concept of Hallmark Holidays. Hallmark Holiday is a term used to denote any holiday whose sole purpose is to sell greeting cards and cheap sentiment rather than commemorate an event of historical or cultural significance. Its name is a reference to Hallmark, an American-based company that makes billions every year peddling holiday cards and paraphernalia. However, the Hallmark Company is not too eager to accept responsibility for filling the calendar with holidays. Its official company website denies any involvement in creating holidays simply to boost business. The website states, We are honored that people believe Hallmark invents holidays. To be so closely associated with celebrations is quite a compliment. Alas, it's not that easy. It's also not true. Hallmark must respond to what people want, not the other way around. Congressional resolutions, proclamations, religious observances, cultural traditions, and grassroots leadership by ordinary people create holidays. This statement is seemingly Hallmark's final word on the matter, and it is not technically speaking true. Even taking a look at the official Hallmark calendar, you see a number of holidays with no deeper cultural significance. October 19th, for instance, is Sweetest Day. An official holiday according to the Hallmark calendar, Sweetest Day is a day intended for, quote, a reminder that a thoughtful word, deed, or small gift enriches the life of the recipient as well as the person giving it. According to the website, the first sweetest day was around 1922, when a kind-hearted candy store employee named Herbert Birch Kingston distributed candy and small gifts to orphans in Cleveland, Ohio. This heartwarming story is parroted by many publications and websites across the globe. It is, however, nearly impossible to verify a single aspect of this story. It is cited as a legend by Hallmark and most other sources, but fiction would perhaps be the more accurate term for it. In October of 1922, an article in the Cleveland Plain Dealer described the first sweetest day, which took place one year earlier on October 10, 1921. According to reporter Bill Lubinger, its originator was not a Santa Claus-like candy store employee, but a committee of 12 confectioners pulling an elaborate PR stunt. These 12 men, headed by C.C. Hartzell, distributed candy throughout Cleveland in a bid to codify Sweetest Day as a legitimate holiday tradition. Their reasoning was that if they could add another holiday to the calendar, their candy sales would collectively spike in the autumn slump leading up to Halloween. Even after the initial push, their lobbying continued, attempting to spread the new holiday to cities like New York. Sweetest Day is still celebrated sporadically throughout the Midwest United States, despite its status as a phony holiday. 
Hallmark, though not tangibly tied to the holiday's commercial origins, benefits alongside the candy companies by manufacturing Sweetest Day cards. The Hallmark Company line would have you believe that they benefit only when there's a great enough demand for holiday cards, rather than manufacturing their product to invent a demand that does not exist. Their calendar contains a number of other holidays with dubious historical significance, such as Friendship Day, Bosses Day, and Clergy Appreciation Day. And if you step outside of the Hallmark Company calendar, you find an even broader plethora of purely modern holidays on supposedly ordinary calendars. These include Cheese Lover's Day, Take Your Dog to Work Day, National Book Lover's Day, Talk Like a Pirate Day. Some of them are even astonishingly redundant, such as Best Friends Day and International Day of Friendship. To many, this very idea has made holidays themselves feel arbitrary, simply a reason to go and buy extra candy or greeting cards on a normal day. Hallmark's connection is no accident as their company name has become synonymous with the commercialization of holidays. But most of these so-called Hallmark holidays never quite broke through into the mainstream. They remained, at best, quirky answers to trivia questions, until relatively recently, when they were given a new purpose by the advent of social media. According to Liz Cannonberg, Director of Brand Strategy at Sprout Social, the idea of a hashtag holiday grew into full cultural awareness in 2012 or 2013. Brands realized that marketing their products on social media was extremely effective when they jumped on the bandwagon of daily holidays, no matter whether the holiday was ironic or not. By using hashtags, companies can broadcast to anyone posting about these holidays and gather more engagement from their followers. Hashtag holidays are, for companies and entrepreneurs, a pure, uncut form of marketing. Google hashtag holidays and you will find countless articles urging you to adopt these holidays to boost your social media presence and elevate your popularity. Catherine Lamberton, assistant professor of business economics and marketing at the University of Pittsburgh, had this to say about the potential power of social media to shape new holidays. Social media has taught many of us to curate our own lives to create visible, semi-public markers of events or people who are important to us. Individuals who share a passion for a given entity can now find one another. To the extent that these groups seek a way to commemorate the events and people involved in their interest, a holiday could certainly take hold. Lamberton's assertion appears to be that the phenomena of hashtag holidays are caused by people seeking communities of like-minded individuals who also wish to celebrate. Almost like we're creating annual fan club meetings for things like desserts or talking like a pirate. But these clubs are not insulated against corporate influence. In a way, hashtag holidays have become a way for companies and brands to sneak their way into these personally curated lives. It is corporate manipulation disguised as self-help entrepreneurship. For most people, this is a fairly innocuous sort of corporate behavior, which can largely be avoided. But what of the holidays that we think are more sincere traditions 
that only exist because of strong marketing pushes in recent years. Not every Hallmark holiday is as relatively obscure as Sweetest Day. The holiday that got the whole ball rolling on cheesy marketing-driven celebrations is still widely commemorated to this day. And that holiday is Mother's Day. Up next, we'll explore how the invention of Mother's Day kick-started the craze for commercial holidays. Now, back to the story. In the early 1900s, the yearly calendar was relatively holiday-free in Europe and America. Besides Christmas and New Year's, the holidays you celebrated depended on your country. The first official Thanksgiving was celebrated by presidential decree in 1863. But a new non-religious holiday was on the horizon, and it would start due to a woman named Anna Jarvis. Anna Jarvis was born on May 1, 1864. She grew up in a devoutly religious household and was very close with her own mother, Anne Maria Reeves Jarvis, who served as a nurse in the Civil War. The elder Jarvis attempted to foster friendship between Union and Confederate soldiers after the Civil War by founding Mother's Friendship Day. Mother's Friendship Day was intended to be a day where the mothers of Civil War soldiers would gather and bring their children along, where they could talk and repair the emotional wounds left by the conflict. Anne Jarvis passed away in 1905, leaving her 44-year-old daughter devastated. Anna Jarvis was determined to make sure that strong mothers like her own were to be honored. To that end, she started organizing Mother's Day events through the church where she taught Sunday school. Anna Jarvis's idea for a national day celebrating mothers caught on fast. Her ceaseless letter-writing and promotional campaigns had the power of sincerity behind them, as well as generous endorsements from John Wanamaker and H.J. Hines, founder of the department store and food brands bearing their name. The first official Mother's Day was held on May 10, 1908, in two locations, in Jarvis's church in Grafton, West Virginia, and in Wanamaker's department store auditorium in Philadelphia. The new holiday had achieved national attention by 1912. By this point, Anna Jarvis had founded her own organization called the Mother's Day International Association. Its purpose was, unsurprisingly, to promote the version of the holiday Anna Jarvis believed in. Despite the early involvement of Wanamaker and Hines, Jarvis never intended Mother's Day to be a commercial holiday. In her eyes, it was a day for quiet reflection among good Christian families. But even as early as 1913, retailers were taking credit for the establishment of the holiday, most obviously the floral industry. The commercial world of flowers wove their way into early Mother's Day like a weed. Early adopters of Mother's Day, including Anna Jarvis, had worn white carnations to the celebrations. Jarvis had suggested these flowers since they were her mother's favorite. It is no surprise, then, that the floral industry seized on this detail to make a profit off the fledgling holiday. Soon, marketing had warped the innocent decoration into something far more profitable. 
Advertisements promoted the idea of giving a mother a bouquet of flowers for Mother's Day and urged churches to decorate with flowers on the second Sunday in May. A 1913 edition of the Florist's Review stated, For the success of the day, we are to credit ourselves, the members of the trade who know a good thing when we see it and who are sufficiently progressive to push it along. Mother's Day is ours. We made it. We made it practically unaided and alone. In 1914, only a year after the boastful article in the Florist's Review, President Woodrow Wilson signed Mother's Day into law. The holiday that Anna Jarvis had campaigned so hard for had finally gained its place in the calendar of American holidays. But it would not be long before she regretted ever pursuing this venture. In 1917, the floral industry had completely taken hold of Mother's Day. Their advertising implicitly condemned the act of not buying flowers for your mother on Mother's Day, making their position one of kindness, not fiendishly calculated marketing. Anna Jarvis briefly sought to work in conjunction with the floral industry, speaking to various florist clubs across the country about her cause and accepting generous donations from them. But finally, in 1920, Jarvis and the florists finally parted ways. After weathering significant amounts of criticism for turning her innocent and sincere holiday into a crass commercial enterprise, Anna Jarvis had a change of heart. She formally denounced the floral industry and stated that true believers in Mother's Day should not purchase flowers or any other gifts for the occasion, suggesting they wear celluloid buttons instead of carnations. This was the act that doomed her role in the growth of Mother's Day. Flower trade papers immediately turned on her, removing any mention of her involvement with Mother's Day from their literature. In 1922, the Florist Review reported that Jarvis's campaign had been completely squelched, patting themselves on the back for pulling strings to keep her complaints out of the press. As her battle with the Florist's Review failed... Jarvis turned her sights on easier opponents. Unable to force the florists to back down, she worked hard to discredit the number of people who spoke out, claiming that they had the idea at around the same time. And while she had a number of legitimate grievances against the commercialization of the holiday she had pioneered, her attacks against individuals grew increasingly nasty. She referred to people who offered up their own interpretations of Mother's Day as usurpers, grafters, trespassers, and deadbeats. She even leveled attacks against those who used Mother's Day to endorse philanthropic causes, calling these people charity charlatans. An apocryphal story from around this time tells of Anna Jarvis going into the tea room at Wanamaker's store for lunch and seeing they had a Mother's Day salad on the menu. She ordered the salad. When it was delivered, she dumped the salad on the floor and stormed out, leaving money to pay for the discarded food on the table. She continued fighting the commercial aspects of her holiday until her death on November 24, 1948. But even as she fought the floral industry for control of the holiday she had pioneered, another holiday was using her as inspiration. In 
Once Mother's Day started growing in popularity, communities across the country started seeking their own opportunity to enter the holiday market. And one of these, inevitably, was Father's Day. The idea of a Father's Day arose from a number of different sources almost as soon as Mother's Day was gaining traction in the States. But much like Mother's Day, Father's Day originated from a sincere and highly religious woman. Her name was Sonora Smart Dodd. In 1909, after the preacher in Spokane, Washington, gave a Mother's Day sermon, Dodd approached and said, I like everything you said about motherhood, but shouldn't fathers have a special day too? Like Jarvis before her, Dodd began a passionate letter-writing campaign to various religious organizations to adopt the holiday. The reactionary nature of this holiday was not lost on many of its early adapters. One Presbyterian minister, Dr. Conrad Bloom, used this as an excuse to reaffirm patriarchal values. Quote, It was Father's Day when Noah built the ark. It was Father's Day when Christ chose the Twelve. The New Testament is strictly masculine. The antecedents and pioneers of the Christian faith were men. The Bible is a man's book. The word Father is found in the Bible 1,650 times. Mother, but 311 times. It is a Father's book. Despite such passionate adherence, Father's Day was not as quickly adopted as Mother's Day. It was seen by many as an object of ridicule, an obvious ploy to capitalize on the Mother's Day market. And rightly so. In 1938, an organization was founded to advance the adoption of Father's Day called the National Council for the Promotion of Father's Day. This organization was founded by New York City's Associated Menswear Retailers. The grassroots origin of the holiday and Sonora Dodd's sincerity were lost in the shuffle almost immediately. That same year, the New York Times noted that any proponent of Father's Day had to face, quote, the teeth of quipsters and a lack of parental enthusiasm. Anna Jarvis herself decried Father's Day as the brainchild of, quote, some necktie, tobacco, whiskey, and lottery promoters. For many satirists, the idea of doing a Father's Day was inherently funny, since fathers were seen as the breadwinner of the family unit. Giving him a gift that he essentially paid for was seen as an unnecessary expense by many fathers of the time. And yet... Despite the nakedly commercial motivations, cynicism from the press, and general mockery from all around, Father's Day did not go away. It was officially made a national holiday in 1972 by Richard Nixon. When asked about the commercial nature of the holiday, a 90-year-old Dodd said, Oh, I like it. I love it. Besides all the cards, Advertising and special promotions have done one major thing, focused attention on observance of the day. Her attitude was the polar opposite of Jarvis, who had seen the commercialism of Mother's Day as antithetical to the very idea of a sincere family day. But regardless of their attitudes towards them, both of these holidays were taken away from their respective founders and given new life as card-buying occasions. 
As both Father's and Mother's Day grew into the public calendar, companies started becoming bolder as they introduced new obscure holidays into the calendar. In 1916, the National Confectioners Association proposed Candy Day. For the second Saturday in October, throwing the weight of their advertising power, promoting the idea that people should give small gifts of sweets to each other. This holiday still exists, only it is now on November 4th, coincidentally falling on the day confectioners are selling their Halloween surplus. In 1919, Joyce C. Hall, founder of Hallmark Cards, proposed Friendship Day on the first Sunday in August. This was another strategic choice, as August was seen as a slow period in between actual holidays. The Greeting Card Association endorsed Friendship Day with a unique kind of logic, writing that, like all worthwhile holidays, Friendship Day was unsupported by tradition. This casts Hallmark's official claim that it does not possess the power or influence to create holidays in an entirely new light when one considers that they were one of the first organizations to rework the calendar to benefit their sales figures. In the official Hallmark calendar, Friendship Day still falls on the first Sunday of August, the same day as Sister's Day, another holiday with no traceable historical legacy. The nadir of the early scramble for more holiday dollars came in 1939, when the National Dry Goods Association finally managed to convince President Franklin Roosevelt to move Thanksgiving back a week to lengthen the Christmas shopping season. Some satirists dubbed this controversial move Franksgiving. It was a signal that the iron grip of marketers was not limited to the holidays that they made up. The wave of new corporate-conceived holidays continued, in spite of rampant criticism, resulting in the overstuffed calendar we see today. But while the official trend only started after Mother's and Father's Day, the first Hallmark holiday is a celebration masquerading as a long-standing cultural tradition. It is such a bedrock of the year that in America alone, people spend over $19.6 billion on it every year. That day is St. Valentine's Day. Coming up, we dive into the vague and suspect origins of the original Hallmark holiday. Now, back to the story. Hallmark holidays is almost a derogatory term when referring to a holiday. It implies that the celebration only exists because of an obligation for companies to make money year-round. Hallmark itself claims it has no involvement in the creation of fake holidays. But our perception of what makes a real holiday has been distorted by the lens of history. One of the most famous Hallmark holidays is falsely perceived to have a rich historical tradition dating back to the early 200s CE. You've heard the story, and it probably goes something like this. Hard iron manacles fastened the priest's arms behind his back. The guards pulled him forward, their spears rattling over his head. The corridor was tight and dark. 
a single spot of light up ahead growing with each painful step. Suddenly, the world opened up around him. A crowd awaited in the arena. They jeered, yelled, and screamed at him. The priest's heart sank to see such a bloodthirsty crowd. The guards forced the priest onto his knees. He looked up to the booth in front of him, eyes searching for the man who ordered his demise. Finally, he saw him, the man who thought he should die for supporting young lovers. Emperor Claudius II looked down at him coldly. The priest saw a glint of regret in the man's eyes, or he hoped he did. He didn't have time for a second look as his head was forced onto the block in front of him. Then the sword descended. This is the most popular backstory to St. Valentine's Day, that it is named for a Christian priest in the Roman Empire who officiated weddings at a time when soldiers were forbidden from marriage. For his bravery and piety, he was canonized after his death. The veracity of this story has been under debate for centuries. Everything from the time period to which of the 14 St. Valentines is even the protagonist of the story. The linchpin of the story, that St. Valentine officiated illegal weddings, likely never happened. Many books and websites tie the giving of romantic notes to this story. They claim that the imprisoned saint, in the months leading up to his execution, fell in love with the warden's daughter. He supposedly signed his letters, From Your Valentine. Like many myths about the origins of holidays, this one is likely a fabrication. The first historical account of St. Valentine in the romantic sense comes from the noted medieval poet Geoffrey Chaucer, who included this passage in his Parliament of Fowls, describing a flock of birds' behaviors in the spring. For this was on St. Valentine's Day, when every fowl cometh there to choose his mate. Professor Henry A. Kelly of UCLA suggested that this passage is not referring to the Roman martyr St. Valentine, but rather St. Valentine of Genoa, whose feast day fell in early May. According to Kelly, it would make sense for the famous poet to associate springtime with romance, and how his Italian connections made his knowledge of this particular saint plausible. But even if the connection between St. Valentine the Martyr and romantic love was a case of mistaken identity, the story of its growth from there is far more clear. How this holiday became the greeting card and chocolate bonanza that it is today is more a testament to 19th century marketing than cultural tradition. Alongside St. Patrick's Day, St. Valentine's Day is part of a genre of holidays that fell out of fashion centuries ago. These were known as Saints' Days, popularized by the liturgical calendar of saints. In the Middle Ages, much of Europe relied on this Christian calendar to divide up the year. The calendar was practically stuffed with feast days honoring the various saints of the Catholic faith. These included the Feast of St. Agnes, the Feast of St. Martin, and others that did not survive the transition from a religious to a secular society. In this tradition, holidays and economics were clearly separated. French medieval historian Jacques Le Goff wrote, 
Against the merchant's time, the church set up its own time, which is supposed to belong to God alone and which cannot be an object of lucre. The transition away from a calendar of saints was gradual, starting with Protestant reformers in the early 16th century. They believed that reducing the number of saints' days was beneficial to their faith as a whole. Famous reformer Martin Luther claimed the so-called holy days were in reality the most sinful days of the year, saying, We vex God more on holy days than on others. Besides these spiritual evils, these saints' days inflict bodily injury on the common man in two ways. He loses a day's work, and he spends more than usual, besides weakening his body and making himself unfit for labor, as we see every day. But two of the holidays stuck around to the present day. St. Patrick's Day, due to its cultural ties with Irish immigrants, and St. Valentine's Day, due to the power of economics. For centuries, Valentine's Day was one of the many general feast days in the liturgical calendar, not well known outside the Christian faith. It was only in the 1840s that it started to break through into the mainstream. Valentine's Day in 1800s America was treated the same way we treat our daily holidays today. Papers made passing mention of it, with maybe a romantic rhyme or two, but it was not a commonly observed holiday in the United States. Britain was another story. Their cultivation of valentines as personal love notes began sometime in the 1820s. When observing the American calendar, novelist Samuel Woodworth concluded in 1832 that the English custom of sending valentines and drawing lots for husbands and spouses on the 14th of February was never much practiced by the people of the United States, and it is now almost unknown. But in the early 1840s, the concept of giving a handwritten note started to slip its way in among the American public. It took a few years for marketers to realize the immense spending potential of a celebration of love. In a particularly apt example, the Philadelphia Public Ledger ran no advertisements for Valentine's Day from 1840 to 1843. But after that, their advertisements for the holiday steadily increased, until by 1851, they were running 24 in their issue immediately preceding the holiday. The advertisements of this era made no attempt to conceal the blatant financial motives at play. One particularly tongue-in-cheek New York bookseller printed a rhyming poem as their advertisement. Come ye lovers, one and all, be ye great or be ye small. Into grams make a dash, there's the place to spend your cash. Every lover there will find valentines to suit his mind. From high to low his prices range to suit the quantity of change, which in your pocket so loosely jingles to Graham's ears so sweetly tinkles. In February of 1849, Joseph R. Chandler proclaimed in Graham's American Monthly, St. Valentine's Day is becoming, nay, has become, a national holiday. One of the major figures in popularizing Valentine's Day was a man named Thomas W. Strong. 
Strong was a printer and stationery entrepreneur who made his fortune hawking valentines in the mid-19th century. He even started his own monthly paper, Yankee Notions, which published a number of articles on the history and customs of Valentine's Day. With this method, Strong could disguise promotional material as journalism. Promoting the idea of Valentine's Day as a holiday with a storied cultural history was integral to its acceptance in the mainstream. Strong himself played on a common longing for lost traditions felt in a nation that was not even 100 years old. Strong said in one of his columns, We have so few holidays that we must celebrate this one with all the more ardor. That ardor continues to this very day. Despite an ever-persistent handful of cynics and critics, the wave of consumerism carried Valentine's Day from obscurity into the mainstream with ease. Today, Valentine's Day is a juggernaut of an industry. Though the eventual fate of Thomas W. Strong's business has been lost to history, his efforts to force the Valentine into common parlance were thoroughly successful. According to estimates by the National Retail Function, Americans spend an average of $143 each on Valentine's Day gifts, making the industry worth $19.6 billion. What started as a feast day not remotely connected with romance blossomed into an ecosystem of economic obligation. In her 2004 essay, The Commodity Frontier, sociologist Arlie Russell Hochschild argued that the increased commercial exploitation of things like romance and familial ties creates a form of business competition not between companies, but between the economic system of capitalism and human connection. Valentine's Day itself may encourage a form of romance, but when marketing forces the social pressure of relationships onto people, it can have some horrific consequences. Holiday stress combined with the stress of romantic relationships makes this holiday a breaking point of sorts for many couples across the globe. Perusing recent history, it's not hard to find countless examples of Valentine's Day that are a little more gruesome than romantic. For instance, in 1971, 19-year-old Jesse McBain and his girlfriend, 20-year-old Patricia Mann, left a Valentine's Day dance for some alone time. They were found days later in the woods near Durham, North Carolina. They had been tied to a tree and strangled to death. To this day, whoever killed the two young lovers has never been found, and the motive remains a mystery. Perhaps their unknown killer was incensed by the picture of idyllic young love and wished to make an example of them. In a case that proved more typical of Valentine's Day slayings, a woman named Tiana Notis was killed outside her apartment in Plainville, Connecticut in 2009. She had been stabbed 20 times. Suspicion automatically turned to her ex-boyfriend, James Carter, who she had broken up with several weeks before. He was convicted of her murder and sentenced to 60 years without parole. In 2013, Minister Nathan Luthold 
gave his children valentines before school. Then, once they left, he sat down and waited for his wife, Denise, to come home. On her return, Luthold shot his wife through the head. During his trial, it took a jury less than 90 minutes to find him guilty. Though Luthold never confessed or even admitted guilt for the crime, the date was certainly not accidental. Though it would be a stretch to lay complete blame for these savage slayings on Valentine's Day itself, the holiday has cultivated an extra pressure around romantic partnerships that make such outbursts unsurprising while still horrifying. In the span of almost 2,000 years, the legacy of St. Valentine has transformed from one of Christian martyrdom to one of societal pressure to spend a certain amount of money on your partner. Without centuries of marketing behind it, Valentine's Day would be no more well-remembered than St. Agnes's Day or St. Martin's Day. The calendar year is stuffed with holidays that have no significance whatsoever to historical or cultural traditions. And while many can be seen as fun annual jokes, such as Talk Like a Pirate Day, others have a more sinister meaning. While only a few of them were conceived by the Hallmark Company, Hallmark holidays are a corporate invention intended to drive increased sales for their products in the guise of wholesome holiday fun. And with the rise of social media, a new angle has appeared. You may think it is harmless to use a hashtag holiday to boost your Instagram profile or snatch a few extra likes out of cyberspace. But when you do you're participating in a cynical game of marketing. But when some of these days bear corporate brand names, such as National Oreo Day, the line between holiday and business scheme becomes inevitably blurred. And when every day is a holiday, there's really no cause for celebration. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll be back with more on The Dark Side of Holidays. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like The Dark Side Of, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode was written by Robert Teamstra and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.